Uh, glad to see you all. My name is Eric, and I uh, just want to welcome you all. So good to see you all. Those of you who don't have a cabin to go to on Memorial Day weekend, we're glad to see you today. And then everyone watching online who are currently at the cabin, watching from the cabin, or Jeremy and Stacy watching from Wisconsin, so good to see you guys. Uh, the Stapletons, good to see you guys. And then I know lots of you will be watching later, too. So maybe you're watching this on a Monday or a Tuesday or whatever. Good to see you all. We are wrapping up our series on John, and we'll be done here in just a little bit. I am the proud father of four kids, and uh, it's, it's, it's just an immense privilege to be able to be a dad. About uh, six, seven years ago, my wife and I were living in Wisconsin. Again, don't hold that against us for you Minnesotans. Uh, for those of you who are in Wisconsin, those are some good times. Some rough times, but some good times as well. We moved there with just one kid, Joshua, and kind of learning what it meant to, to be a family out there. And then we got pregnant with our daughter, Rebecca. And if you know Rebecca, she's right there. And so uh, when I use my kids as a sermon illustration, uh, I owe them $5. So later, I'll give you $5 for using you as a sermon illustration. But Becca, she's spunky. She's awesome. Yesterday, we were playing catch outside. And even though she's a lefty, we've been teaching her how to throw right-handed because that's all the baseball gloves we have. Uh, but she's amazing. She does dance and, and lots of different sports. But the day of Rebecca's birth was honestly probably the scariest moment of my entire life. It's something that I will truly never, ever forget. I was there for Josh's birth, and he got stuck a little bit. So when he was born, he honestly looked like one of the alien creatures from the movie Alien. He had a double cone head. Uh, still a good-looking kid, but man, it was like, ugh. So I was looking forward to my beautiful daughter being born, and this is going to be perfect. Well, when Rebecca was born... She came out gray and lifeless and just, just kind of no motion, no movement at all. And in that moment, I thought, wow, I just witnessed a stillbirth. Uh, there was, there's no life in her. And they, they whisked her away to an adjoining room. And for the next 12 minutes, one of the longest stretches of my life, they tried to intubate her with oxygen until finally this 80-year-old neonatologist came down and finally got her to breathe. Well... That kicked off 10 days in the NICU for her while we were living in Madison, Wisconsin. And, and uh, the nurses and the doctors were amazing. And we had actually thousands of people praying around the world for her. And you've probably heard me share the story that God in some way miraculously healed her. They said she's going to have brain damage. And today she doesn't. She's almost perfect. Don't take that to your heart too much. Uh, she's practically perfect in every way. And God miraculously healed her. And it was this amazing moment. It was emotional. And we were, you know, far away from all our friends and family, uh, except for the few friends that we had in Wisconsin. Well, through all that craziness and chaos, I'm not always the best at details and getting things done. And so I forgot to add Rebecca to our insurance. Uh, see, we were very, very very poor church planters had raised our money, uh, insurance. I was making about half of what a um, public school teacher would make uh, in Wisconsin. And so we were on uh, what's called Badger Care for Wisconsin. But you had to add your new child within uh, 30 days of them being born. Well, with the NICU and all this stuff, I forgot to do that. And so fast forward a couple months later, and we get the bill from the hospital. If you've never had a bill like that, um, 100 thousand dollars and we were like oh my word what are we going to do and so we tried to get on badger care we tried to submit the bill and it came back to us denied 
you owe this $100,000. Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, there is no way I could ever pay this? This is beyond our capacity. I think at that time we had maybe $1,000 in our savings account. And I remember thinking, well, the miracle is that Rebecca's okay, but you know, if, we, if this takes us the rest of our life to pay off, like, we'll do that. We'll figure this out. Well, some friends told us about this great law firm that did a lot of pro bono work for people who you know, couldn't represent themselves. And so we went to them and said, hey, here's the situation. Like, we didn't get on the insurance plan soon enough, and can you help us out? And they said, yeah, we, we can help take care of that. Well, we got denied a few times, and eventually... About six months later, finally got the letter, paid in full. Didn't owe anything. That felt amazing. That was such an amazing gift. As we wrap up, getting close to the end of our journey through the book of John, we're going to see in John 19, one of the last words Jesus says is teleste, which was a common term in that day and age, which is what you would stamp on a bill that you owed, saying it's paid in full. And that's what Jesus did on the cross for us. As we dive into John 9, we just join me in prayer as we just remember that Jesus paid our full bill in full. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are alive. You are alive in us and you are here with us. So Lord, just wake us up to what you are doing, how you're already at work around us. And God, for those who feel a heavy burden, a weight, maybe just, it's been a rough week, God, I pray that they would just feel some relief. They would feel your love and care today. And as we receive communion, God, they would sense your real presence as we receive the elements, as we remember what you did for us. In your name we pray, amen. As we've been journeying through the book of John, we come finally to this. Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest friends in the garden John 19, verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. That meant the professional Roman soldiers, they they took a whip with bits of bone and glass in it, and they would whip Jesus' back, and they'd pull it and pull out chunks of his back. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They would press it into his skull and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Here, these professional soldiers are mocking Jesus as they get ready to crucify him. The important thing to know is this is the day and age of the Roman Empire. And to have the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, you you had to make sure everyone stayed in line. So what they did was common criminals, they would crucify them on the road leading up to the city. So as you came into the capital city, you would see all the enemies of the empire hanging there on the cross. Many of them would be left up there for weeks as the birds ate their bodies. And it was just a reminder of the might of Rome. And Jesus was just one of many, many who were crucified. Jumping ahead to verse 16. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And so what they would do is they'd have a vertical pole waiting for him at this place outside of the city. And the crossbar, they they would tie with, with ropes And the criminals would have to carry their own cross. And Jesus, who most likely was a a stone mason or a carpenter, he probably worked with his hands his whole life. Um, His father, Joseph, was a workman. Um, Most likely he worked with stone and possibly wood as well. 
very strong, but the beating and the, and the, the whipping took so much out of him. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate, who's the Roman governor, also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified it was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, which is their common language, in Latin, the kind of the, the Roman language, and in Greek, kind of the cultural language. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. I'm not going to change it now. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. So what we have is Jesus, he carries this heavy crossbar, and then they would nail him to that vertical piece, and they would put nails through his hands, and, and as well as on his feet, and they'd leave a peg that he could sit on, and the thing is, the crucifixion doesn't kill you, it's slowly asphyxiating as your body fills with fluids, and so what you'd have to do, many of you know this, is you'd have to push up on those nails to get a deep breath, and then you settle back down, and, and your lungs slowly filled with fluid, and Sometimes dying could take a day. Sometimes it could take weeks. Kind of depends. So this is what Jesus is doing. But Pilate, the governor, he writes this sign that says, Hail, King of the Jews. And the, I want to point out just a couple quick things today. And the first one is that Jesus is king. He was lifted up. In a mocking way, Pilate writes a sign, but Jesus truly is the king. He's lifted up overall. And this great and wonderful king, through the cross, he pays our whole price in full. Second thing we see is that we have these four soldiers, and they're casting lots for the five pieces of Jesus' clothing, most likely his, his outer garment, his, perhaps his prayer shawl. Jesus would have worn this shawl with, we talk about these, these titsis on the bottoms, they were the fringes. The woman with the issue of blood, she reaches out in faith towards Jesus as the Messiah, because the Old Testament prophecy says there'll be healing in his wings, which is the, 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 the tassels of the robe. He would have had his sandals, he would have had his inner garment, a headdress and perhaps a belt. And so the four soldiers all t each take one piece of clothing and that leaves the last piece of clothing, which then they are gambling for. So you have these four soldiers here sim symbolizing might and taking what we want. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, Mary, his mother's sister, Jesus' aunt, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So we see here this John, we, we talk, John is such an amazing uh, author and, and symbols and everything has symbolism and meaning. And he wants us to see at the foot of the cross four soldiers taking what they want with might and power and four women. Jesus' mom, his aunt, who with other sources we see was most likely the mother of James and John, which makes James and John his cousins. Mary, the wife of Clopas, we don't know much about her, and Mary Magdalene who seven demons were cast out of and worshiped Jesus by anointing his feet with tears. So you have four soldiers, might, empire, four women there at the feet of Jesus. And John is intentionally contrasting these two groups together. And, and which one is Jesus' kingdom? Is it the kingdom of might and power and take what we want? No. It's the kingdom of those 
who the rest of the world looks down on and says, man, they are powerless in this system. And Jesus, as he's on the cross, as he, he's pushing up his body to breathe, what does he do? When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, most likely his cousin, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. As I said this week, I never really put that together. It makes a whole lot more sense that John is Jesus' cousin, John and James. And Jesus is turning and saying, hey, your aunt, he's turning to his cousin, that's now your mom. Take her in. Ethan Vector, our youth director, he, he's my nephew. And it makes a lot of sense that Ethan is in that moment of dying and he turns to Joshua and says, Josh, take my mom into your home, your aunt, and take care of her. And from that day forth, he did. I love that even on the cross, Jesus is always looking out for others. He has tenderness and compassion. And from that day forth, John, who then became a pastor up in Ephesus uh, on, on the sea. And I love that, that I, I picture Mary finishing out her days with, with John there on, on the, near the, the ocean. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. Throughout the book of John, we've been talking about you know, spiritual thirst and that, that he is the living water. But a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Earlier, Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh, which are these spices which would have deadened the pain. And Jesus said no to that. No painkillers, nothing to deaden his pain. He wanted his full senses. But here it's a little different. It's not the same uh, wine they offered him earlier. And they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And again, that hyssop branch, that's something else I want us to point out here. Uh, we look back, at, this is the Passover weekend. And as God led the Jewish people out of slavery and bondage into freedom, he was, had what was called the Passover. And the angel of death was going to come and kill the firstborn unless you took a hyssop branch and painted it on the doorposts of your home. Then the angel of death and destruction would pass over you. So John is intentionally saying, hey, you remember that Passover event? This is Passover weekend. And although Jesus already celebrated that with his disciples, Jesus actually is now the final Passover lamb. That this hyssop branch, Jesus is going to paint his blood on the doorpost of the universe so that all are free to come in into life. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, or tetelestai. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Again, that phrase is something that was common in this day. That when you worked hard to pay off a debt, that's what they would stamp on that debt. And our English doesn't have a great translation for actually the, the Greek word here. What it really means is it is paid, it is finished, and it will always be finished. It will always be paid for. Do you remember the story? Many of you probably know the story of the Good Samaritan. That's kind of a cultural idiom nowadays we talk a lot about. But in that story, the Good Samaritan, he, he takes care of the Jewish man who's been beaten and he, he puts him in the, the hotel and he, and he pays his bills. But then he says, any future costs I will bear. What Jesus is saying here, it is finished, means it is paid for and also it will be, continue to be paid for. That not only am I paying for all the sins everywhere in this moment, but moving forward, everything beyond that, I'm going to pay for that as well. 
So when Jesus says, it is done, it is truly done and paid for, but also everything stretched into the future, I'm going to continue to pay for that. An amazing, amazing thing that he says right here. And he bowed and gave up his spirit. Since so the day of preparation, getting ready for the Sabbath, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away, so that they, wouldn't, they couldn't push up anymore. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it, John, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that, one, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. They pierce his side. Perhaps they pierce the, uh, the sack around the heart, but blood and water flows out of Jesus. And again, John, symbolism. That blood is a symbol of mercy. In the Old Testament, you had to shed blood to receive mercy, to receive forgiveness. And now Jesus' blood is being shed, and all may receive mercy. But in the same way, his, the water is being poured out. And throughout John, what does water symbolize? It symbolizes the spirit. As Jesus dies now, out of him flows the Spirit, and that's going to come into the world that all may receive his Holy Spirit, that all may receive streams of living water. What an amazing promise that through the death on the cross, not only is it finished, but we receive mercy, which means not getting the punishment that we deserve, but also life and, and, and living water, and the Spirit is coming out of Jesus right here in this moment. After these things, Joseph Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, we talk about him in John 3, who early had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. This was a gift fit for a king. When King Herod the Great died, they used about 80 pounds of spices for his body. So this is like an equal to one of their great kings of that day. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The final thing I want us to look at is that garden. If you go back to the beginning of our story, and we look at Genesis chapter 2. We see a river flowed out of Eden. Oh, sorry. Let's go back to uh, in verse 8. This is the very beginning. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. In the very beginning we see a garden with a river and the tree. And what if we go to the very end of our Bible, the book of Revelation? And I know we can get caught up in all the, like, the left-behind stuff, but here's what's really important. is at the very end, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
through the middle of the street of the city, and we see at the end, heaven comes down to earth, the new Jerusalem, and we don't just, some disembodied existence, but God creates a new heaven and a new earth. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So at the beginning of our story, we have a garden with a tree and a river. And at the end of our story, we have a garden with a tree and a river. And what happens in the middle of our story? Jesus dies on a tree. And out of him flows blood and water as he's laid to rest in a garden. We're going to get ready to receive communion. And I want you to think about that garden of where we came from, where we're going, and in the middle. Jesus makes it all possible. By dying on that tree, out of him flows living waters. And then he's buried like a king in that tomb in the garden. Now that's not the end of the story. Next week we're going to talk about the resurrection. But today I want us just to think about that. That Christ, our king, through his death on the cross, paid our bill in full. Stamped in full. It is finished. It is paid in full. Christ, our king, they mockingly put that up on him and they put a robe and a crown, but he truly is the king of the universe. And he died on that cross to pay in full the price that we could never pay. Chris and I, it would have taken us our whole life to pay off $100,000 of medical debt. But in a moment, it was paid in full. And the same way our sins were paid in full. Not only were they paid in full, but they continue to be paid in full. And so how do we remember that? In our church, it's, it's through two ways. We call these the ordinances of the church. It's first is through communion, by remembering on a regular basis that his body was really broken for us, his blood was really shed for us. Usually we'll, we'll bake communion bread for our community and we'll break it up, but because of COVID, we're still doing the little fish food crackers and, and the prepackaged grape juice, so we'll receive that together in a little bit. But also there's another way. that Through baptism, it's our way of, of identifying with Jesus, that he was killed, he was buried, and then he was raised to life. Lovely. I don't know. If you have not been baptized yet, I want to encourage you to think about being baptized in two weeks when you do that at Weaver Lake Park. To identify with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And kids, if you're thinking about being baptized, talk to your parents about that. Uh, we are open to baptizing kids as long as they're open to really understanding that they are a sinner in need of Jesus' love and grace that, that comes through the cross. And if they want to participate in that, like we'd love to have that conversation about what that means to be baptized on the 13th. Pastor Josh is going to come up in a little bit and talk a little bit more about communion. But before we do that, I just want you to point your attention uh, to check out this video. All right, church, how are we doing today? We good? We alive? Come on, man. This is, uh, this is an opportunity that we get just to be a family. Um, as Pastor Eric Sherman, we've been going through the whole Gospel of John, and I feel like every, every Sunday when we've talked about the Gospel of John, we talk about the Gospel and how it all is a full circle and comes back to this, this moment. And what I love today is this idea, that this, this whole thing, we're, we're having a kids' service. We have kids in here hanging out, beautiful face and beautiful smiles. And we're a kids' church. If you don't know anything about Mosaic, we're all about the kids. They're not a second afterthought. They are, they are the most important thing. And uh, I love it because we're talking about these things that maybe aren't easy to talk about. We're talking about the crucifixion and we're being honest. And uh, 
I don't know if you have ever watched The Passion of the Christ or any videos like that or any shows that really paint this picture of what's really going on. But, I mean, Eric did an amazing job today talking about what's really happening. And maybe you've grown up in church, maybe you haven't. I've grown up in church. I've grown up as a missionary kid. I've grown up around this stuff all the time. And sometimes I can get very uh, numb to the idea of what's really going on. I don't know if I'm the only one, but sometimes I can take for granted the depth of what really is happening. And so to take these times to really talk about what's going on is so huge. And then to bring it all around, this is why we do baptism, this is why we do communion. So right now you'll have, Wendy is actually going to be passing out the elements right now. And I just wanted to share a little bit about my experience with communion as a kid and how I've grown throughout the years and how I just see it differently now. And first as a kid, I remember this was snack time. I've said that before. This is the moment where you get free snack, but it obviously is way more than that. I can't, I mean, when I was a kid, I would can't wait for communion Sunday because like, oh man, free crackers and juice. It was, it was the moment I was waiting for. And I remember as I grew up, my dad started teaching me more about what was going on and the pastor would talk about it. And I really started taking this time like, man, when was the last time within my week, whatever's going on, whether it's school or sports, whatever, as a kid, you actually took a moment and just asked for forgiveness. I mean, adults, come on. When was the last time we took time out of our days, out of our weeks, and asked for forgiveness? But we just stopped and said, God, I am sorry. Remind me of that love, that grace, that mercy for what you did for us on the cross. And so time passes by, and now I'm 30 this year. I'm, I'm not a kid anymore, kid at heart, but I'm not a kid anymore. And I was actually out of town this last weekend. I was hanging out with some people, and we were just talking about just life and how life is hard. It's not easy. Uh, specifically, to be honest here at church, we are talking about marriage. Marriage is not easy. Um, if you think marriage is easy, please teach me your tricks. You know, my wife puts up with my shenanigans all the time. So give her the wisdom and prayer that she needs. But marriage is not easy. And we were just talking about just how to balance agendas and all this stuff. Just talk about things. And this person I was talking to, they said, well, there are things that I'm going to take to the grave. There are things I'm never going to talk about. There are things that have happened that I'm just going to go right to the grave with. I'm going to die with those things. And as we were talking, I was like, man, how many times have we heard that or acted like that and forgot that this is why Jesus did what he did? So you don't have to take it to the grave. doesn't matter what you've done, doing, or going to do, church. We have a God that sent his son to die for us, that broke his body and shed his blood so that you don't have to take things to the grave. He took them to the grave so that we don't have to. And I can't think of how many times people in this world we feel like we can't talk about things or we can't even bring them to the cross because we're so stubborn and we think that we got to hold on to these things. Guys, this is why we do communion. This is the point. Obviously, it's not a snack anymore. It's not, that, it's not that type of thing. It's a moment where we can realize that Jesus broke his body for you, that he shed his blood for you. When we dive into the scripture, the timing and, and the setting is Jesus hanging out with disciples, and it's their last few moments they have before things get very real and very hard. And he teaches his disciples, as he does throughout his, his life here on earth, that this moment is an act of service that this moment is an act of love. Just as Eric said, that he is constantly thinking about others. Even moments before he dies and experiencing one of the most excruciating deaths known to mankind, he's not even thinking about himself. But he says, 
brothers, disciples, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Ultimately, this is the, the real reason why I'm here, why I came down to earth. And then take this cup. It's filled with my blood. Take and drink. This is my blood that is shed for you. Church, this is your, your moment. This is your time to experience that as well, to be reminded of the forgiveness of sins that comes through freely for those who believe and know why Jesus did what he did. And so again, I just want to encourage all of us, kids, adults, wherever you're at, you don't have to take things to the, to the grave. That's not who we are. That's not what Jesus did. He took it for us so that we can go to the cross. That's what this is about. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to watch another little video just to talk a little bit more about this communion so you can understand the concept even more. And then afterwards, I know maybe you've already taken the communion cup and, and, the, and, the, and the wafer, but you can hold on to that if you haven't yet. We're going to go into a time of worship. And during that time, I'd love for you just to do whatever you need to do in that time. Maybe that's stand up and sing. Maybe that's just sit down and pray. Maybe that's taking that moment for just one second to say, God, I'm sorry. Lord, let me experience that forgiveness. Lord, let me really understand and be reminded what communion is all about, what baptism is all about, what the cross is all about. So right now, go ahead and check out this video. Then the worship, we're going to come back up. Feel free to engage in the communion with that with us, and then we'll keep going. Check out this video.